Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Also, Wilsey Asset Management is the proud investing partners of the San Diego Padres. Uh, not much left on the uh, Padres season, is there? I mean, what is this, September already? Wow. Yeah, it's, it's not looking good, obviously. I think we're still seven or eight games back. We did beat the Astros last night, which was positive, but we dropped two to three to the Phillies and... You know, it, it's I kind of held out hope, but you know that hope is definitely, definitely dwindling. <laughs> yeah, getting difficult, but we still enjoy sponsoring them and, and being a proud investing partner with them. So, but uh, we also got uh, topics to talk about uh, today. Uh, our financial planner Harrison is talking about student loan payments uh, starting soon. He's going to discuss that. Uh, we'll be talking about Chase and I the UAW strike. Gosh, it's right around the corner. Terrible news. We'll talk about that. Also, that that government shutdown is uh, in the news again. We'll discuss that. Uh, also, to talk about what's going on with Apple in China. Chase? Well, as always, you, you got a stock you're looking to buy and selling or holding. You want to join the show. Phone number here, 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. And we'll, we'll take a closer look at the fundamentals of that stock and, and give you our opinion if it's a buy, sell, or hold based off the numbers. We always tell people we do a lot more research than what we provide on the, the radio show here. So this is just the start of the research, but based off the numbers, we'll, we'll give you our opinion. Yep. And uh, good to be back here. It was gone uh, last week. And uh, kind of feel strange today because I'm in a suit. Chase is in a suit. He doesn't wear the jacket. He wears uh, the vest. But uh, it's our investment symposium for our clients that we do uh, twice a year. It's a major event we do for our clients. So we talk about what's going on in the economy. We talk about our portfolio. Uh, we give them a nice brunch down in Mission Valley. If you're a client, uh, hope that you'll be attending. If you're not a client, Maybe you want to consider being a client. So <laughs> we always love doing the, the consultations with people. But uh, let's talk about the UAW strike because that is something that uh, is going to be the news more and more starting already. But based on recent readings, it looks like the UAW will strike against the automakers. I'm certain the automakers will need to increase pay for the auto workers, but this could perhaps cause them to raise the prices of their cars to cover the increase in labor costs. I hope the head of the union uh, and union workers read the following. Well, it, it now takes 42 weeks of income to buy the average new car. This compares with 2019 when it was 33 weeks. How far do the unions think car makers can increase prices on consumers and still make a profit? Honestly, don't believe the union leaders explained to the workers the reality of running the businesses that they strike against. Financial statements of all the automakers are public information that could be read by a CPA and then given to the union and its workers so they have a reality check there. And it's unfortunate they don't do that. It's just, you know, the union against management and, you know, management, I, I do believe, you know, because we see the numbers, that they, they do a good job paying their workers. And I've, I've seen that the average hourly uh, for the UAW, for the car manufacturers, including benefits and everything, is like $80 an hour. I mean, it depends on who you talk to. I've seen it between 60 and 90, so that's why I say 80. Uh, it's not like they're starving, and the demands that they're asking for are way excessive. I mean, I think it was what, uh, to be increased or paid by, what was it? 46% over the next three years. Four years. 
four, uh, four years. Okay, contract. so that's still that's that's pretty. But high. that's not even the bad one. The bad one, the worst one, in my opinion, is cutting the work week to 32 hours and still getting paid for 40 hours. Right. Because that compounds the 46% pay increase to in an astronomical <laughs> amount there. Well, and also, too, that means now you've got to either hire more workers. Well, I guess you have to hire more workers because now that's one day less. So now you've got to replace what that be five days. You'd have to get one worker to replace those five days. Yeah. So it, it, it's they'd have to across 146,000 yes. workers. Yes. I mean, so you think about that. That's another major cost for them. I know there's uh, they want stuff for medical uh, pension. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. And you have to look at the business. Yes, the business is owned by many, many shareholders that they want to profit. And, yeah, it'd be nice to get a, a high pay. And they compare themselves to Mary Barra. Oh, she's gotten millions of dollars. Well, she got it through to- stock compensation. I would love to say to the union, look, guys, you do a good job. We'll give you stock as well. You, we can all enjoy uh, the increase of the value of the company. But the union just wants to be greedy and just say, give us our cash now and give us guarantees. Well, the, the problem is, too, it's, it's guarantees. Yeah. And regardless of if the automaker is doing well or not, where that's the thing that nobody talks about, uh, they just use the buzzword, oh, corporate greed, you know, and, and really trying to get people riled up using those, those right. key words. And the thing with Mary Barra's pay is it's performance based. Right. So, yeah, she got pay increases because of the performance of the company. If all of a sudden they started losing money and the performance of the company was doing poorly, her pay would get cut. And also point out, too, that the pay is not in cash. It's in stock. I believe she has a base salary of $2 million, $2 million. And then the rest of it is stock-based compensation, yeah. performance-based compensation, most of which that performance-based compensation comes in the form of stock, which, thanks to this union strike, GM stock is down. So that's actually hurt <laughs> her pay quite substantially since she's been getting those. Hard, and it's... It's just it's frustrating. Right. I mean, you know, it's really a pivotal point, in my opinion, in this country that people are really fighting against corporations. And, and just the term corporate greed is so problematic because when you think about corporate greed, I hate to say it. We need corporate greed. Corporate greed is what drives, and it is a bad word to use, but the underlying tones of it is we need corporate greed to actually produce new cars. We need the Elon Musks of the world to innovate. We need Jeff Bezos's to create the Amazons. You know, that's what these people are fighting against corporate greed, but that's how we've gotten these businesses, and this is why our country is so strong is because of corporations. It's actually union greed, I think, is is the problem that we have. And again, they just want to... Take and again, it is greedy because you look at the profits that the automakers make. This this Wipe deal, it out. yeah, it wipes it all out. So they make no profits. Well, what's actually that they make? lose money. Lose money. I, 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 G, if this goes through, if every deal came through that the UAW wants, GM, Ford, Stellantis will be out of business in five years. Yeah, because I I think and these are rough numbers. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think based on the automatic like GM, I think their profits were about twelve billion. This would cost them twenty billion. Yep, yep. So that's not so. So again, that's a deficit of eight billion. You can't stay in business. Yep. It, it just makes no sense. And you look at it, the UAW has come out and said that GM and Stellantis they actually filed a suit against them for negotiating in bad faith, essentially. But GM just offered them a, a 10% pay increase, a $6,000 inflation bonus, a $5,500 ratification bonus just for signing the contract, right. plus 3% 
pay bonuses throughout the life of the contract, plus two more inflation bonuses over the next four years. I, I mean, the, the deal was, in my opinion, quite fair. It was the highest pay increase since 1999. Wow. The UAW comes out, says it's insulting. <laughs> and I think it's insulting because it's not the 46%. But again, if they increase it even 30%, they're going to go out of business. Right. I mean, you're competing against Tesla, Toyota, Honda. They are Hyundai. Hyundai is just taking away market share. Hyundai is another one. Yeah. And they are just licking their chops right now because guess what? They don't have to pay union workers here in the United States, even though it's the same job. Right. They don't have to fight against the unions. And, and what can happen, and, and I'm all for American workers and doing stuff here in the U.S., but when you force in a situation GM and Ford and Stanley is, am I saying, you know what, we're going to go down to Mexico and build the cars. We'll go somewhere else because we can't afford to build the cars based on what the unions are asking. And I hate that thought, but you're forced in that position to where you're going to lose money. You, you got to, their, their job is to make a profit. I'm sorry, that's what a corporation does, make a profit. And, uh, and, and the union, they're getting paid well now, they got a good offer. It's just very frustrating. Uh, we've got the actors and the, the, the writers on strike now. Um, everybody thinks that things are going well. And, yeah, they went well after we had the situation with COVID. But if you compare it to 2019, oh, it's not really that much different. Well, they're looking at peak profits as well. Yeah. Is, you know, things that you said have been very, very good for the auto manufacturers. Their margins could shrink because, you know, the transaction prices have been so high right. and demand has been so high. Well, we know the Fed's trying to slow down the economy. Well, if the, the economy does slow down, guess what? Automakers' profits aren't going to be $12 billion yep. for GM. They could shrink to $7 billion, $8 yep. billion maybe. It, it could just be a big problem that you got to keep an eye on. Right. So it's a problem. We'll, we'll be on top of it. Uh, again, I think the date is what, uh, September 14th or 15th, I think, is a strike date. So we'll see. 14th. We'll... I, was, I was surprised there was actually a, a note out this morning I was reading that they assigned a 60% chance of a strike. I'm assigning a 90% chance of the strike. <laughs> I'll say 100%. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, another, gosh, bad news uh, we're coming out with today. But uh, the government shutdown. Uh, here we are in September the and the end of the federal government's fiscal year is fast approaching, ending on September 30th. 30th. The question is, will the government shut down October if the Democrats and Republicans can't agree on funding legislation? At our firm, Will C. Asset Management, we don't worry about short-term movements in the market caused by political turmoil because we know that they will come up with some type of settlement sooner or later. If you look back in history, in 1978 and 1979, the market did decline when the government shut down. Uh, but in total, there have been six shutdowns since 1978 that lasted five days or more. And on all other occasions since 1978, the market actually increased. So what is that? There's six shutdowns, two were negative, four were positive. Yeah, yeah that's pretty good odds there. This also included a 10% climb during the December 2018 to January 2019 shutdown. I do believe investors have come to understand government shutdowns are now, sad to say, normal, and they will come to a resolution at some point. So with that said, we will not be selling any positions in our portfolio based on a government shutdown. I'd recommend the same for all investors. We all know market timing. It, it just it, it doesn't pay off there. No, no. And we have when you come in for you know a free consultation, how we do things. We show you this this list that we have or this this graph that shows over the last 15 years in equities, you made about 10.6%. But if you miss just the 10 best days of the market, that return over those 15 years is only 5%. So don't think you can time this. Well, I'm going to get out of GM because if they strike, the stock's going to go down. Very well could happen. 
But what if we're wrong? What if they don't strike? Or what if the strike lasts a day, a week? Uh, it's just not worthwhile doing. You've got a good company that has great products. Uh, they will figure this out. This is not the first time an automaker has been, you know, had a strike against them. Uh, we love the railroad strike. Uh, yeah. That proved to be okay. So maybe something will happen here as well. So look at the business. Don't worry about these short-term problems that can come up uh, with uh, the government and politics. That's just, I hate to say it's the norm. Yeah, I mean, we go through it, and, and that's why you just, fundamentally have to look at what you own and obviously you kind of talked about it a little bit already but obviously i, I don't like going through these strikes with gm no. or ford it, it just it hurts the economy it hurts the businesses but is it a bad business i'll tell you yeah if they cave on all those demands <laughs> right. yeah i would I mean, sell those companies because it it's even if it goes down 20 30 percent i think those companies could go bankrupt or unless they raise the price of cars 20 percent, but then, then no you're not going to sell them right. so it, it's going to be a problem so you know you have to look at not trying to time it, as you said, because there's going to be things that could happen that all of a sudden things turn quickly. And there could be some other news. It's funny, the actual December 2018 to January 2019 strike, there's other factors that come into play outside the government shutdown as well. That was when the Fed was really increasing yeah. rates at the end of 2018, and then they started to pivot. And then things shot up in January, February. <laughs> so there are always going to be other market forces. Who knows? Maybe if the government shutdown happens, Powell comes out, I'm not saying this is going to happen, says, yeah, we're we're not going to increase rates, and you could have a huge rally. Right. I, I mean, there's going to be other things that you look at, and this is what we tell people. People unfortunately fixate on generally one bad thing, maybe a few bad things at a time. When in reality, there's thousands <laughs> of things to look at, but they're so hyper focused on what the media is talking about that is so negative, and it stops them from investing, and it hurts their returns in the long term. Right, and it just and that's what we do. That's why we spend so much time reading all the, the data. That's why every Saturday we, we do the, the topics. We also do the newsletter, which uh, I always promote at the end, but I'll promote it now. I mean, it has a lot of these topics in it. If you don't get the newsletter, uh, you should sign up for it. It's at our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Right in the middle of the page says newsletter. But we have a lot of these things that Chase and I are looking at, and we share them in our newsletter as we read them saying this is important. Uh, look at this, but it, it's not just—it's not just one or two things. It's many factors uh, you have to look at. So, surprise—I uh, I won't say surprise, but uh, yeah, I guess it was surprise on Apple in China. The the news for Apple in China uh, should concern uh, shareholders. Uh, China recently announced that they would ban iPhones and other foreign branded devices at work for officials at central government agencies, and they would not be allowed to bring them into the office. It was then reported by Bloomberg that China is planning to extend the ban on iPhone use to state-owned corporations. Now, China does make up a good chunk of revenue for Apple, as it currently accounts for around 19% of total revenue. Gosh, it's almost a fifth of the revenue comes from China. Uh, I do find the time of these reports somewhat odd as what is that, Huawei? Huawei. Huawei. Yeah. Uh, Huawei, which is a big competitor to Apple, recently announced their new smartphone known as the Mate 60 Pro that is capable of ultra-fast data connectivity to rival 5G. Now, this will definitely threaten Apple's market share in the country. Back in 2019, Apple held 56% of smartphone sales over $600 in China. 
while Huawei held 39% of the market share. And remember, they were kind of competing in Huawei. Yeah. It was making kind of some headway there. But as Huawei has had to battle limitations on components due to U.S. restrictions, their market share sank while Apple's has really expanded. In fact, in 2022, op- Apple held 70% of the market share compared to just 11% for Huawei. As the battle between the U.S. and China continues, I do worry this could cause a big sales hit to Apple. Not to mention... Who knows what else China could look at banning when it comes to Apple's service revenue in the country as well. I mean, you got to remember, China is on top of everything. The gaming, they're in charge of the gaming. They could say, no, you can't you can't buy uh, Apple's games anymore in the App Store. Right. I, it might sound ludicrous, but you never know. And the big thing that I kind of point out here is, is from China's perspective, I kind of get it, quite frankly. Oh, yeah. We I, banned Huawei here. Right. Who's to stop them from banning Apple in China? And let's talk about what's going on with TikTok. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, is it Montana? Yeah. Montana's banning it. Uh, you, you can't ban. And, and again, I agree with the bans because I think there are yeah. problems. But you can't expect to ban what China puts out here and then not have them ban stuff like that. Because like, it's, it's, it's kind of like a game. You're yeah. going to hurt us. We'll, we'll hurt you. And, uh, and that's what I talked about, too. I, I, I have been worried with Apple and also Qualcomm. Qualcomm yeah. has a big hit. I've, I've talked to people that work for, for uh, Qualcomm as engineers. I go, so what do you think about China and stuff? I'm kind of concerned about that. No, it should, it should be fine. But we always forget China is not a, uh, well, they're a communist country. Yeah. And the government can tell whoever they want to what to do. And you also brought up uh, the other day, too, that you heard uh, or read <clears throat> that citizens saying, well, yeah, I want to support my own country, so I won't buy an Apple product. I'll buy a Chinese product like we do here. I'd rather buy an uh, American product. Yeah, that was in the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal, yeah. So, so they were interviewing different <coughs> citizens, and that's what they're, they're like. Yeah, I had the iPhone uh, 10, but now I'm upgrading, and I, I want to support my country. Yeah. So it, it's you know something – when you have 70% market share, that – hurts because you can start to lose that market share, not to mention the incremental revenue that's generated from iPhone users. Because the big thing Apple has talked about is keeping that iPhone base large, because then what do they get when people have iPhones? Well, then they actually get service revenue from people when they hold those iPhones. So all of a sudden, they switch from the iPhone to a Huawei phone. Now, not only do they lose the sale of the phone, but they lose the sale of the ongoing service revenue going forward as well, which is a huge hit to Apple. And I I was kind of surprised. I was... (laughs) Watching CNBC yesterday, and, and Jim Cramer was talking, and you know, agree and disagree with the different things Jim Cramer says, obviously. But he was talking about how his sources were still saying that, you know, foot traffic and everything's still good in Apple stores. I'm and like, Apple stores in China. China. Okay. Well, yeah, they just came out two days ago. You know, <laughs> yeah. you can't shift the right. the country's opinion in two days necessarily. And the big thing that scares me that a lot of people need to understand is state-owned corporations. We don't have that here in the U.S. Yeah. A lot of corporations in China are essentially run by China. <laughs> and I, I think they could have a huge force. If they wanted to slow down Apple sales, they, they could do it. And Apple sales aren't going to go to zero, in my opinion. No. But again, a 70% market share, that is ripe for losing, I think, a good chunk of that. And if Huawei's phone is actually up to, to par right. with, with 5G, I mean, you could see that, that market share go from 11% up to 25, maybe 30% quite quickly, which would shrink apples from, you know, perhaps 70 down to 50. And also, too, that's going to hurt the revenue. As you said, uh, 19% of the revenue comes from China. So if that cuts the revenue down, and and Apple has been having trouble with the growth. We've seen a slowdown in their growth. 
could that cause it to go from growth to a negative? It's a possibility. And I, I, I don't remember. I think it trades around, what, 25 times forward earnings? I have pulled up here. It's yeah. actually like a 20, 29 times 29. this year's estimated. And that's a high multiple based on future growth expectations. If the growth is not there and it comes down to more reasonable level because, well, it's not growing, it comes down to even 17, 18, that stock's going to get hammered quite a bit. And, and I, I don't see what would change that thing. I, I heard some other people on uh, CNBC talk about like, oh, you know, this is, you know, they've gone through this before. I don't, I don't think so. This is different this time. They've gone through different difficulties before, yeah. like iPhone super cycles and iPhone slower yeah. cycles. But that's when the stock traded at 10 times earnings. Yeah. Now it trades at 30. Right. I, I mean, you can't go through a downturn and then be like, oh, it's a buying opportunity because before you could buy it at 10 times earnings and you get that multiple expansion coming back plus the earnings growth. Now you're buying at 30 times earnings. It, you can't get much more multiple expansion, in my opinion. And actually, when you say it trades at 30, you cut that uh, PE in half, uh, you know, I got stock trading under 100. Yeah. Um, so it, it could be. And I just don't see how they can fix this because it is China. And I've talked for years. I <clears throat> I worry about China a lot because they are a communist country and the government can do whatever they want. It's not like, oh, it's a democracy where you can't do that. No, we're the government. We're going to do it. And it kind of almost <clears throat> worries me that China is not doing well because oh, yeah. they're like, fine, we're not doing well. We're going to make somebody else not do well. Rather than try and fix it, they, they could get <clears throat> a little bit of a grudge, so to speak. And be like, right. No, we're, we're going to hurt other people as well then and you know i the other funny thing about apple i was going to say is they have a large manufacturing base in there and yeah they've talked about shifting the manufacturing outside of china well yeah that kind of helps them but it also hurts them because i think china's in there saying oh you want to leave us and take jobs away from us yeah we're definitely going to start banning banning you in different areas <laughs> and 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 i don't think i have it here maybe i wrote it last week or it's coming up but the exports from uh, China to the United States are down dramatically, yeah. uh, which is good. We, we, we've said we've got to reduce our expectation on them, but that does hurt them. So another thing, too, like, well, you're not bringing as much of our products over to you, so therefore we're going to cut back on Apple. You know, I mean, that's a, a big thing, a big benefit for us here. So Yeah, and, and the last thing I'll say about Apple as well is I believe Tuesday is their event where they're releasing the iPhone I is think, it Tuesday? 15. I yeah. believe it's Tuesday. And who know? I mean, they're saying it's not going to be much different, obviously. Right. And it, it's just how much more can they keep increasing prices? And if and I said this when the 14 came out, and I guess I'll, I'll say I was somewhat wrong, but not really because sales and earnings haven't really grown this year. But if the, the 14 to the 15 is not much different, are you really going to have growth? And, and we've talked as well about – how Verizon and AT&T are having some problems with, with costs. Right. How much more can they really subsidize the cost of phones? And they're saying, whoa, whoa, Apple, you and I want to charge us $1,200 for a phone? <laughs> yeah, we, we can't do that. And they got to pass that on to the consumer because that's one thing that, that I, I will say is Apple sales has benefited from companies like AT&T and Verizon where they actually buy the phones essentially for the consumers or, or subsidize them to the very least. And it, it makes a $1,200 phone affordable, right? which is a funny thing to say. <laughs> but, you know, all of a sudden things kind of start to shift and people say, I'm not going to pay $1,200. My phone still, still works. It still works. And it's I still don't not much different. Magic things that have come out with like, wow, I got to have that. You know, it's just like, oh, 
camera's better. Well, I think it's pretty. You know, the, the, I don't see what would make it where you'd want to buy the the 15 to give up a, a 12, even a 12 or 13. I mean, they're probably very similar. Well, and then when I, I got my new phone, I talked about this probably a month or so ago. I, you know, I went from the 8, I think I got the 11 now. Right. I, like, I don't really need the 12. And the cost difference was quite substantial. Verizon actually fully paid for this phone, where I think I would have had to pay like 30 bucks a month to get the 12. I'll just take the 11. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's not much different. And, and, and the other thing, too, I, I was on a business trip with uh, other business owners uh, last week, and I noticed a few of them had the Samsung, I don't know what it's called, the fold-up. Oh, I have, I've seen that, yeah. And, and it was like it was like super clear, um, and you could see things a lot better. And, it, and then it folds up the same size as the, the iPhone. I'm thinking, wow, that, I, I was, that was kind of attractive. I don't know what it costs for that phone. But I'm thinking that's some heavy competition for a, 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 an iPhone because, and they go, we love it. I mean, yeah. we can we can do a, a split screen on your phone and still see stuff. It's wow. like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, uh, so competition is one thing, I, and we love competition because it, it you know increases you know uh, enhancements and, and new developments, also reduces prices. But again, when you're an Apple trading at nearly 30 times earnings. Um, there's people want to take market share from you. And it is, I will say it's tough because Apple has done a great job building out the environment where it is hard to leave the, I'm going to say, iPhone community, right. like the, the group chat and just the app store. It, it it makes it hard to make the switch just because you have, I'm going to say, more of a learning curve right. where you upgrade your iPhone. It, there's not many changes you have to go through. But I, I will say as well, I mean, I was talking to a guy yesterday and he was talking about how cool the Motorola Razor used to be, <laughs> right. you know? And, like, right. I remember that was the cool phone. I think I was in middle school at the time. Or I remember we got you, when I was a kid, uh, the BlackBerry. Yeah. And it's like, wow, this thing is crazy. Yeah. And, I mean, you just never know if there's going to be a new innovation like Apple had that comes out and is totally unexpected. Nobody expected the iPhone to, to really no. just blow up and, and take essentially all the market share here <laughs> in the U.S., <laughs> And it did. And, I mean, there could be a change in three years, five years, something new comes out. And it's like, wow. And yeah. it makes that other product ups obsolete. Yeah. Well, let's open the phone lines, uh, 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Uh, again, if you want to sign up for the newsletter, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. It's Again, right in the middle of the page. It's free. goes out every Friday. Uh, test it out. I think, I think you'll like it. A lot of people really like it. Uh, l- let's talk about, since we got uh, all lines open here, let's talk about credit cards because last quarter Visa had an $8.1 billion in revenue and earned $4.2 billion. MasterCard had similar results with uh, $6.3 billion of revenue and net income of $2.8 billion. If you've been following me for a while, you know <clears throat> I'm opposed to merchants now charging a 3% fee if you use a credit card on the purchase. They say if you pay cash, well, you can save that 3% credit card fee. Now, whether I like it or not, that seems to be sticking, and I have to believe this will be the big headwind to credit card companies. One reason for the growth of these companies has been the increased use of credit cards. In 2016, 31% of purchases were in cash, and credit card purchases were just 18%. Now, in 2022, cash purchases dropped to 18%, 
and credit card purchases climbed to 31%. I do believe that trend will be changing going forward as consumers save 3% on their purchases by paying cash. Also adding to problems for Visa and MasterCard, it is what is known as fintech and other non-bank financial firms, which includes companies like PayPal that offer peer-to-peer uh transaction type deals where you know they have like Venmo uh, mm-hmm. as as the, the largest example there um, by and it bypasses the networks there now I don't see how these things cannot reduce the growth of the big credit card companies which trade at around 25 times forward earnings the credit card companies point out that they saw 22 percent of the revenue in the last quarter come from value-added services such as fraud protection and data analytics but I believe you would still have to use the credit cards to get the services confident that the financial industry is changing and this will hurt the revenue and earnings of Visa and MasterCard unfortunately. Yeah and, and these are two companies that are <clears throat> very pricey. Uh, I think they trade around 25 term, times earnings as well. They have done very very well but I think one day you'll wake up and it's like wow why did it fall so much and it's because of what's happening now with this change and even I'm considering yes Brent Wilsey who's not being on tech eh, maybe I should try out this Venmo thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's pretty easy. And I mean, the other thing you look at, too, is with these credit card companies, I, I was looking at, because obviously, the I think it was 18%, 31% gets you to 49%. It doesn't get you to 100% where these other payment methods come from. And that's things like ACH, debit cards. I forget the exact amount of debit cards, but I was shocked at how many people use debit cards. Because I, I just don't see the point if you're swiping the card might as well use a credit card to get the points right. unless they're trying the merchant fee. <clears throat> but I'd have to understand as well, just speaking of the debit cards, because many of them have, you know, the Visa or MasterCard logo for the card, is how much do the uh, Visas and MasterCards make from debit card swipes versus credit card swipes? I Are they still make money off right. debit card swipes? I mean, we don't <clears throat> own Visa, so I, I'm not sure. Right. But I know when you use a debit card, it says Visa on it. Right. So do they make money off of that? And if they do... Well, are merchants going to start charging a debit card swipe fee? Because if they're having to pay Visa for a swipe fee, well, why would they not discourage debit cards as well? Right. So, I mean, that could hurt Visa. And it's it's definitely anytime there's, you know, kind of a concentration like that by two major players, Visa and MasterCard, and profit margins are very high, generally government, other businesses don't like that. Right. And there will be, I think, some changes that do come about to, you know, reduce those merchant fees or change the way that the financial industry kind of works. Yeah, because, again, more and more merchants are charging 3%. And you say, well, gosh, I, I guess I will pay cash. Or I'll use Venmo. Or what's the other one? Zelle, I think, is another one. Zelle is another <clears> one, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it just worries me that the – and I love using the credit card because you get all your – Stuff in one statement at the end of the month, you see it, you pay cash, and not pay cash, but you pay it off, you don't pay any interest, it's, it's been a great thing. But now these merchants charging 3%, it's like a, there's no sense to use a credit card. Well, yeah, you, you pay 3%, but you get 2% in points for cash back. <clears throat> well, it's like you lost 1%. You'd been better off <laughs> right. paying the cash. Right. You know, and, yeah. and I understand too, I why the merchants are kind of doing it. And I, I know you always say the merchants should pay for it because it's a cost of doing business, which I agree with. But the problem is I think that merchants are starting to do it to make consumers realize how much that Visa and MasterCard are increasing the fees to them. Right. So they're <clears throat> kind of saying like, hey, we're going to put this out there. And I think Visa and MasterCard have been able to just continually raise prices because merchants were covering it for a long time. Right. And now they're saying, we can't 
what are you going to do, charge us 5% now? You know, and, and it keeps going up and up. <clears throat> I think maybe a lot of merchants are now saying, it's like, we got to make people aware of this problem before it com- becomes out of hand. And you know what the first merchant was that started that? And I've never balked about it because I just didn't really notice it that much. Gas stations. Gas stations always for years now have had cash and credit. That's yeah. not 3%. Uh, I did the math yesterday when I was at the gas station looking when I'm pumping gas. Like, wait a minute, I'm getting charged next to my credit card. But it was only about, based on the price of gas, it was still about 1.5%. So it wasn't too bad, but it's just like they've been doing that for a long time. So my point is the trend is changing. This has to hurt the revenue for the credit card companies. Yeah, and I was going to say real quick on the the gas, the reason it's 1.5% is because we live in San Diego, California, where (laughs) gas prices are high. Generally, the cash and credit cost differential is $0.10, where if you're, you know, I'm going to say in like Texas or somewhere right. else, you're not paying $5 a gallon for gas. So, you know, maybe it's $4 a gallon. So then the, the percentage differential of 10 maybe cents is, is higher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There we go. So, all right. Uh, phone number is uh, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's head out to Coronado and speak with John. John, you're in the Smart Investor with Brent Chase. How can we help you? Yeah, hi guys. Tell you what, I uh, I read your comments this week on uh, Visa and Mastercard, and you know they're they're companies that I hold actually, mm-hmm. and um, not so sure I'm in agreement with you, but uh, just thought I'd I'd uh, want to see what you have to say about Mastercard. Well, and, and we'll we'll look at the numbers, and we just had a long conversation about it. So you don't see the trend changing <clears throat> that people still no. use their credit cards the same as before. And I, I mean, I consider there, there's times now I would use my credit card before. And now I've had to say, okay, fine, I'll pay cash. So I, I think I'm not the only one. But Or ACH as well. ACH. Because a lot of you know our vendors that we work with, they're charging the merchant fees. So instead of paying with credit card, uh, I know they're kind of shifting to encouraging ACH. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. I, 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 I travel a lot. And, yeah. You know, I... I can't. I can't remember the last time I used cash to pay for a transaction. And there's going to no. be some that would not make sense. I mean, you, you know. But but then too, you got the fintech companies like PayPal, and uh, there's a couple other ones that they're coming up with things to, against the credit cards. So let, let's look at the numbers here to see where you stand, because that, that's pretty important as well. So coming again is a Mastercard symbol is M A. They're in the industry of credit services. Uh, not much float there. 05 percent, seventy nine percent institutional owned. Here's a problem I'm seeing. The P.E. ratio, 38.9 versus 21.7 for the industry. Price to sales, 16.9 versus 4.2. Price to book value, 70.9 versus 4. And price to cash flow, also very expensive, 34.4 versus 12.9. Now, i got to point out, they do have a good peg ratio of 1.9 versus 3.8, meaning that you're not paying much for the future growth of this company. I guess that's where our differences come in, thinking, I don't think the growth is going to be nearly as big as people think because of the trends are changing. Looking at over the past year, the earnings did climb by 8.1%, above the industry at 5%. Sales climbed by 13.1%, uh, just under the industry at uh, 138 Now, analysts, they give a five-year growth rate of 17 0.5% versus 14.5. Uh, MasterCard does pay a 0.6% dividend using, wow, surprising to me, 20% 
of the earnings to pay out that small dividend. Uh, we do see on the balance sheet, they got a current ratio 1.1 versus 1.3. That's okay. Debt equity 2.8 versus 1.6. That's a higher debt level than I thought. And we are comparing to the credit services industry. So it is comparing apples to apples. I'm disappointed to see such a high debt to equity level. Uh, we do see a net profit margin for MasterCard. Here's probably why it's a high multiple. 43.4% versus 19.7. Uh, return on equity, 185% versus 46. But again, I think it's because the equity is probably very low versus the return. And then the uh, return on invested capital, 50.9 versus 30. Chase, what do you got going forward? Yeah, so current price here for MasterCards, $414.84. 52-week uh, lows, $276.87. And, and right near the 52-week high of $417.78. I mean, I see over the last 10 years, and there's no denying this, the uh, the stock is up about 522%. So, I mean, it, it's been a phenomenal performer. But, you know, it, it's one of those things that I feel like everything has been going right for MasterCard yep. and Visa that what happens if something starts to, to kind of trip them up. And, and that's kind of what we're trying to point out there with some potential concerns to look at. But we go forward to December 2024, see estimated earnings per share of $14.52. We'll give us a target sell price of $241.03. They trade at uh, about 28.5 times those future earnings. And I, I will say, the earnings growth is expected to keep coming. I mean, this year they're looking for earnings growth of 14%. Next year, analysts are looking for earnings growth of 19%. But I would just need to understand where's that earnings growth coming from because are they going to continue to increase fees? They right. continue to do that. That's going to become more problematic for the merchants. Are they banking on more transactions? I mean, I'm not sure if that's going to come about either if the economy does start to slow down as well. So I'm very curious where that estimated earnings is coming from or, or is it the, the services like fraud and data analytics and stuff like that? Curious how much of the business it makes up. I mean, there's a lot of considerations to, to look at here. But ultimately, trading at 28 and a half times earnings, it, it's priced for you know a really good expectations. Yeah, and, and I just don't see things staying the same. I think uh, I see things changing going forward financially. And again, we're not saying oh next week Mastercard is going to fall, but I do believe the trend is changing. I think you'll start seeing these estimates start coming down over the months and years to come because things are changing. I mean, <clears throat> two years ago you didn't have Zelle, you didn't have uh, uh, Venmo, Venmo. So the, the financial landscape's changing, and I don't see how MasterCard and Visa are going to be able to still make the profits when there's more competition out that you know people use. And the vendors that well, say, we're going to charge you 3% for using the credit card. Well, what's, what's interesting is if you look in a lot of, um, just say, mutual fund portfolios, MasterCard and Visa are, are grouped in with tech companies, normally in tech portfolios, not in financial services or, or banking. So, uh, you know, like what you're saying, I, I think there's something more to it than just um, doing transactions. There has to be some more of a uh, technology play on it. Well, I, th I don't think it's the technology. I think a lot of them hold it because it's it's a growth stock. I mean, it, it's looking mm -hmm. at the, the earnings and, and sales growth of these companies. So by nature, a lot of technology mutual funds are rather growth mutual funds, right. so they'll buy those high growth businesses, which is mm -hmm. a Visa and Mastercard. So, I'd I'd assume that that's the uh, correlation between those two facts, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I I'm kind of speculating there. Right, and, and, yeah. and they are trying to do other things as well. But they, over the, the last, we'll call it decade, they've had this luxury thing they've had where it's been three players, Visa. MasterCard, American Express, and the government tried to come in and try to shut them down. Nope, they figured out ways around it. But now it's a consumer saying, I'm only going to use my credit card for 
you know, when I travel or at the hotels or the airlines. But when I go to some of these vendors, uh, it, even the car wash guy, he, you know, I'm going to charge you 3% for every fee. Well, <coughs> fine, I'll just pay cash. So that has to hurt the business because I would use my credit card for every single thing. Now I'm going to start pulling back because, or I have to start pulling back because I don't want to pay that 3% <coughs> for, for nothing. So, well, it, I, will tell you, I will tell you something funny. I was in downtown San Diego and some guy was panhandling and he Asked me for a dollar. I said, no, I don't have one. He said, well, you can Venmo it. <laughs> you know, I, oh, I don't have that either. Well, but he didn't say he has a credit card. <laughs> but, yeah, no, he pulls so. out a square. <laughs> <laughs> so Anyway. Well, All right. Well, thanks, guys. Okay, John. Thanks for the call, and uh, you have a good one. Right. Bye-bye. All right. All right. That does open the phone line, 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Time to talk to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Good morning, Harrison. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, guys. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Well, good, good. Today we're talking about the student loan payments that are starting again soon. What effect is this going to have? Yeah. So for a while there, um, it was thought that student loan forgiveness of ten to twenty thousand uh, dollars was going to be happening, but looks like that's off the table. Um, however, there are some changes coming to how student loans can be repaid. Uh, the biggest change is the introduction of the SAVE plan, S-A-V-E. It's an income-based student loan repayment plan that is replacing um, the repay plan. And here's how it works. Your payment is based on how high your income is above the federal poverty line. It used to be based on 150% of the poverty line, um, but the SAVE plan is increasing that to 225% your income is less than 225% of the federal poverty line, your payment would be zero. So no matter your income level, this exclusion increase from 150 up to 225 is going to reduce everyone's payments that are in this plan. Right now, for a one-person household, the poverty line is $14,580 a year. Um, so 225% of that is 32805 so no payment if your income is less than that 32800 number. Another change is the amount of your income that has to go to the payment. It used to be 10% of your income that was above that $150,000 uh, line limit. That's being reduced to 5% of your income that's now above that 225% poverty line. So this will also reduce the amount of payments. Um, another huge change, and I think probably the biggest one, is the fact that unpaid interest will no longer be added to the loan balance. So previously you could have a situation where someone was making payments for years, but their loan balance increased over that time period. And that was because their income allowed the payment to be small, but it didn't reduce the amount of interest. So the interest was just getting tacked onto the loan balance. So if your income based payment was a hundred bucks, but the interest was 150, that extra 50 would get added to it. Now, if there's any, interest in excess of the monthly payment, it just gets forgiven. Um, after oh, wow. making payments over time, the entire loan balance can then also be forgiven. And depending on the size of the loan and the payments that you're making, it could take 10 to 25 years for total forgiveness or whatever the re remaining balance is. Um, so because of the way this works, it's not really a loan anymore. It's more of a payment that needs to be made for a set period of time. And that also means that for a lot of people, the interest rate doesn't matter since any excess interest is just forgiven. 
Um, something to keep in mind is the payments are based on your AGI. So if you can reduce your AGI, you reduce the payments. So things like adding to your 401k, um, you know, not only reduce your federal and state taxes, but then also would reduce the amount of uh, student loan payments that you have to make. So overall, people with low to moderate income levels will have reduced monthly payments and would receive forgiveness. And then high income earners will have reduced monthly payments or they could refinance, um, you know, when interest rates looks like they're going to go down. I, I mean, the whole thing sounds rather complicated. I'll, I'll put it that way. But, but, <laughs> yeah, I was telling Harrison, uh, you know, I, I talked about this on Fox 5 a few weeks ago, was, I mean, the, the current thing is already, I'm going to say, completely complicated because you have graduated repayment plans where you start off lower and then it slowly right. builds over time. You have income-based repayment plans, which is what Harrison's talking about. You have your standard repayment plans, which I don't know why anybody with this new plan would do anything other than the save plan because it, it's really kind of risk-free almost. Unless you have a high income, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, unless you have high income, right. but most of the time starting out of college, you're not making $400,000 a year. So you can go on right. that save plan and then you transition to refinancing that debt somewhere else. Yeah, that's true. And I, and I was thinking, you know, doctors or people that are making pretty good money. So do you know what the, the break point would be, Harrison, on what the income would be to where it's better than the other ones? you got to look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, it has to look, you have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis because it also depends on the uh, balance of the loan that you have and not just your income. Okay. Um, you know, because in some cases you might be able to get your income low enough and maybe your balance is, isn't too large where it would make sense to refinance or if you have a really large balance, you know, maybe it'd be better just to make the income-based payments and then have some forgiveness after a period of time. But also you have to look at how your income is going to change over time, you know, maybe right now. Um, your income's not as high. Like if you're a doctor, um, your income kind of grows pretty quickly as you go through your residency and everything. So initially the safe plan could make sense, but then as your income goes up, then it might make sense to look at refinancing. But, you know, you also just have that, maybe it's only going to take, uh, you know, 12 years to, to pay off the loan. And, you know, once you're seven years through, maybe it doesn't make sense to refinance the full balance there if you're going to receive forgiveness in a couple of years. So, um, like Chase said, though, I think for most people, this save plan would make sense. And then it's just a question of would it then make sense to refinance um, into something if you can save on some interest, if you are going to you know, have to pay the full amount because your income's high enough to allow that. And I hate to say it, but uh, it's so complicated. I know that people are going to be tripped up by it. Things are not going to go the way they expected. And it just seems like there's a lot of problems that'll happen here. When I, I did see the other day as well that Republicans are actually trying to fight this, but uh, based off just kind of my very brief readings on it, that, that a lot of people are saying that they just don't have the legislative power to fight that in the, in the House. Um, yeah. So it, it's the safe plan is it looks like going to be in effect fully, I think is what they're saying is J July 2024. Right. Well, here's yeah. some. Yeah. It's yeah. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'll say we'll see you on Monday, but actually we'll see you in a little bit at our uh, investment symposium for our clients. Yep. We'll see you guys soon. All right. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Again, it's Harrison Johnson. He's our CFP, uh, our financial planner. He's on a salary, so does not sell you annuities or life insurance or anything else there. He's do there to do a good financial plan for a fee. If you want to sit down for a free consultation with him, give him a call at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546. 546-4306 or send them an email through our website. Go to our website smartinvesting2000.com 
That's smartinvesting2000.com. All right, so we got a phone uh, call from someone who cannot stay in the line, uh, Jim in Alpine, that uh, wants to know about MPW, Medical Properties Trust Incorporated. He's seen it uh, way down and wants to know if it can be fixed. So let's take a look at uh, MPW, Medical Property Trust. Uh, they're in the healthcare facilities uh, area. It is a real estate investment trust is what it is. Uh, on the short float, very high, 30%. Institutional own, 78%. Uh, the PE ratio right now is 60, which sounds high, but the whole industry is 265. Price to sales, 2.8 versus 4.6. Price to tangible book value, and this is very important because tangible book value just means, you know, your, your, your assets that you can touch that are real assets is 0.5 versus 9.4. So you're paying 50 cents on the dollar for the real estate, mostly is what they have, the buildings and stuff that they own. That's your, your tangible book value. Price of cash flow is also good, 6.5 versus 15.6. So the valuations look very good on medical property trusts. Now, the earnings are down 94.5% over the past year. Not as good or not as bad, I guess, or worse than I'll say. The industry down 66%. Sales are down 11.8% when the industry is up 23.4. They do get a five-year growth estimate of a negative 9.4 versus a positive 19.8. Now, they do pay a dividend currently of 15.4%. That's uh, been cut. That's been, okay. It's so now 9%. Okay, so now it shows you that's still the old one there. So, okay, so I, I was wondering about that when I saw that. I didn't think it was that high, so it's about 9% now. Uh, we do see that uh, on the balance sheet, got a current ratio of 0.9 versus 2 for the industry. Debt equity, 1.3 versus 1.1. That's okay. Net profit margin, 5.1 versus 1.5, and return equity is 0.9 versus 1. And this is very difficult because being a real estate investment trust, some of these numbers I just gave are not as important. You're going to talk about the FFO, correct? Yeah, and uh, starting here first, the, the current price for MPW, again, Medical Properties Trust, is $6.64. Uh, looking at the 52-week low, it's actually $6.38, and the 52-week high is $15.16 there. If we go out to December 2024. Again, very important. We use the FFO or the funds from operations because REITs have a lot of you know non-cash expenses, mainly depreciation, depreciation. Uh, on those buildings and so forth. So we look at the cash flows or the FFO. It's one dollar and fifty cents. I mean, it, it gives us a target sell price here at twenty-four dollars and ninety cents. It, it trades at four point four times twenty twenty-four FFO, which is just an extremely extremely low valuation. Right. And this deals in a very good area. Now, if it was in a area that could be replaced by technology or uh, AI or something, but it deals with hospitals, with surgical centers, and that's a growth industry. So this appears to be a company right now or a real estate investment trust that's having difficulties that can get through it because the industry is growing. I think healthcare is growing, I want to say 7 or 8% per year or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the other thing that you have to understand with these REITs is a lot of REITs have been hit pretty hard because of the debt refinancing that, you know, they had locked in rates at 3%. Now rates could be, you know, 6, 7, 8% on the refinancing, but you got to look at these REITs balance sheets. It's almost like these people are looking at saying all of that debt is going to be refinanced at 8, 9%. Right. Well, that's not going to be the case. We know that that debt is going to mature at different stages for different REITs. So, we believe that next year the Federal Reserve will likely start reducing rates at some point. Probably right. the end of the year is our guess. Right. But but it will stop increasing rates. But it will stop increasing right. rates. Right. And so what will happen is, yeah, all of that debt they have refinanced is not going to be 8%, 9 
some of it will, unfortunately, and that's going to be hit to FFO or, or the cash flow for the company. But over the next five, six, seven years, the, they're going to be able to refinance at, at likely lower rates than what we mm-hmm. have today, which should allow this business to, well, number one, still own the hospitals, and right. number two, still generate cash flow. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and and sometimes these short-term problems with, with businesses or real estate investment trusts, like a medical property, uh, can last 12, 18, maybe 24 months. But you don't know when that's going to turn around. And people say, well, I'm going to sell now and get out when things are better. You won't know when things are better. That's a big problem that people have when it comes to investing. And I wanted to point out a key thing that I said. The dividend yield got cut to 9%. So right now, if you were to sell this company, let's say, you would have to find something else that is going to be a better buy. You have to wipe out, unfortunately, what had happened in the past and that it did fall. Because you'd have to find something that is going to yield 9% and give you potential price appreciation to get you back to where you were, unfortunately. So that's one thing that a lot of people make a mistake is, I hate this company because it's down. Well, sometimes the companies that fall, they generate the best returns over the next two to three years. Yep. That's what you want to be looking at. And, you know, I, I think the numbers, they, they, they look fine for MPW. And that's why you want to look at the balance sheet to see what the assets are, what's the situation. Um, so, but, but again, you're not going to have a company that just goes up and up and up. Uh, and, but this and is unfortunately, one. sometimes it goes down, 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 and down, and then it goes up. Then it goes up, exactly. All right, uh, phone number is here, 833-288-0973. Let's go up to Long Beach and speak with David. David, you're in the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. Yep. How can we help you? Good morning. Yeah, uh, my stock is Cummins uh, Engine or Cummins Incorporated, and it's been erratically. It's it's like double when I bought it three four years ago, but it's it's having price moves in the last few days that don't make a lot of sense. Six or eight or ten points up or down. I don't know if that's straight because it has a thin, you know, float or something. But what worries me is um, going forward. California, basically, you've heard it is supposed to ban all diesel engines before 2030 or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there'll probably be lawsuits, you know, on interstate commerce uh, type of thing. But they're also attacking California, put out a thing that they want to ban railroad diesels, which would, uh, which would run up against the Supreme Court case from the 1940s. Um, but one of the there's only two people west of the Mississippi that own a railroad. One is Warren Buffett, and the other is the Union Pacific Corporation. And I do not think that Cummins historically has never been the manufacturer of the what they call the prime mover in the diesel locomotive. So again, all these things have me wondering. And yet the stock is performing pretty well. It's uh, just raised its dividend again, and companies don't usually do that if they expect you know bad. Uh, revenues going forward. Yeah, we've known about Cummings for years, and it just does seem to be a, a, a good quality business. But uh, let's go to the numbers here with you, see what it looks like going forward. Uh, Coming again is a Cummins. They're similar to CMI. They're in the specialty industry machinery. Uh, only 1.4% uh, short float is what we see there. Institutional is 88%. Uh, PE ratio right now, very good. 13.2 versus 23.7 for the industry. Price of sales, 1 versus 1.7. Price of tangible book value is 6.2 compared with the industry over 500. And then price of cash flow, 15.4 versus 19. Uh, valuation ratio is looking very good. And even the peg ratio, which the lower the number, the better, 
1.1 versus 3.2, so it does not look like you're paying much for the future growth of Cummins. We do see over the last year that the earnings were up 24.8%. The industry up 796 which sounds like a strange number, but that's what I see here. Sales for Cummins up 29.9%. The industry is up 28.1%, so sales for Cummins better than the industry. We do see a five-year growth rate of 116 for the company and only 10.3% for the industry. They do pay a 2.9% dividend and only use 35% of their earnings to pay that out. Uh, we do see on the balance sheet, current ratio 1.4 versus 1.9. That's okay. Debt to equity 0.8 versus 0.7. That is good. Net profit margin 7.9, just slightly under the industry at 8.6. And return on equity is 24.6, above the industry at 23.1. Chase, what do you got going forward? Well, just real quick, I was going to my two cents on on my opinion here on the, the whole diesel thing. And it, it just... it. it doesn't make any sense because they have what's known as renewable diesel yeah. as well, which is based off of huge cooking oil, based right. off animal fats, based off of soybeans, based off of different types of renewable products. We should be encouraging stuff like this to keep diesel around because now we have renewable diesel. Banning diesel engines, it, it's completely interchangeable as well. You, you can use renewable diesel and diesel right. type Engines. No, 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 yeah. There's there's not like, oh, I have to have a renewable diesel engine. No. Right. You have a diesel engine, you use renewable diesel. It just doesn't make any sense. And I'm hoping that the, the politicians come around to this idea that there are going to need to be other fuel types than just EVs because we will have some serious issues with our electric grid if we don't diversify our energy base. Yep. But with that said, I will go back to the numbers here for Cummins. Current price, $234.87. 52-week low, well, $200.40. And the 52-week high is $265.28. Now, if we look forward for the company, we go out to December 2024. see estimated earnings per share here of $19.57. Would give us a target sell price of $324.86. Trades at around 12 times future earnings. I mean, that, that still looks like to be a, a pretty good valuation there. I will say earnings are estimated to grow 22% this year, then estimated to fall 2% next year. So a little bit of a slowdown in growth expected next year. But still, the, the valuations are strong. I believe it's still a good business. I would want to understand a little bit more, though, with those regulations, kind of who their customers are, how much business they have in California just to be on the safe side. But I, I like Cummins. I, I have a bias. It was one of the, the first companies I actually bought uh, in my personal portfolio years ago. So uh, full disclosure there. Hey, and I'm kind of wondering why the earnings are expected to go down from 23 to 24. I'm, I'm probably probably a slowdown in the economy. You think so? Um, you know, just maybe less kind of manufacturing, less need for those engines. Right. I, I Just an assumption. Also, you have a 22% growth this year. Yeah. Naturally, it's hard to grow Taking off. Taking some growth from the growth. next year to put in this year. Yeah. yeah. So, well, well, David, that's uh, that's what we think about. I mean, it, it's uh, – and do you hold that in your portfolio or looking at buying yeah, it? Yes, I do, and I was lucky enough to buy it at around 130-something, and I, I wanted to add to it, but the only thing that was stopping me was uh, – you know, was there any future? As I said, everything, the raising the dividend now four or five times. I think when I bought it, the dividend was down around a dollar thirty. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you, you do get a nice dividend from it. And, and Chase, I'm sorry, I, I was looking at something else. Uh, the target sell price is how far away? Did you, uh, <laughs> you raise it? <laughs> uh, it trades at twelve times future earnings. Okay, so yeah. it, it's about thirty percent, I would say. Yeah. So yeah. So it, it's it's probably that level. Percentage wise, how much does it make up of your portfolio? Very little. That's why I wanted to add to oh. it. It's probably under 1%. Uh, I, I would say it looks pretty good, but I, I would also say, too, I mean, it's not like a great buy. I think there could be other buys out there that would be better than Cummins. I know you have that feeling like, oh, I've done so well with it. 
you want to do more with it. But I think Cummins is a decent buy. Well, as I said, they don't have a lot of competition now. The in the railroad industry, one of the main providers of the prime mover, as you probably know just historically looking at movies, has always been General Motors, who I think was long since out of the diesel engine business. Yeah. It was called Electromotive right. Corporation back in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. anyway, that's, that, that leaves Cummins and uh, kind of is the only, the only one I'm aware of. Well, I got to go, so thank you for calling. Uh, that is the closing bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational person only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Brent Wilsey, or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And be sure to visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. Sign up for the newsletter. Thanks for listening to Smart Investing Show. We'll be back next week. Have a great weekend. Bye. So amusing to think